Good morning. Good morning. Okay. Uh, hope you have your Bibles. I hope you do. Please open up to First John chapter two. We'll begin today in verse fifteen. I'll take an opportunity before we begin. Most of you have already met her. I don't want to make it incredibly awkward either. I have not just did. Um, up in the front is uh, Courtney. We just kind of wave a little bit. Courtney, uh, her last name is Ross, is going to be interning with us for the rest of the school year. Um, she's going to be trying to, she's interested in church planting, um, trying to get the experience of what makes us a church plant. What does that look like, particularly now that we're four years in, um, trying to see some of what that still looks like. Um, even though we are certainly at a different place than we were back in November of 2009 when um, we constituted. Um, some of you guys have been here for most of that, if not all of that. Um, the remaining four original members are uh, me and Matt and our wives. Um, and then uh, Colin was there with us on our first service, uh, which has been exciting. <laughs> so we're kind of counting him, too, uh, so our original five. Um, and then several of you came very shortly after that and have been with us. But she's going to be um, doing a, a lot of different things. You're going to see her floating around in different places, uh, working in some different ministries on Sundays. She'll probably float into your house gathering. Um, she's going to be attending different ones just to see what's going on. So make sure you make her feel welcome. Uh, get to know her. She's going to be uh, hanging out with us for the next couple months. So with that, let's, uh, let's jump into this. Um, let's go ahead and read our text together. After last week, this is going to be a bit of a... Maybe not a shock, this isn't unusual for us, but we're only doing three verses this week. Um, so it's going to be much, much, much uh, deeper. We talk about flying at different altitudes. Uh, this is about as close as we can get, um, unless you want me to go for an extra hour, then we'd be about as close as we can get, um, as far as the preaching sense would be. So let's go ahead and read our text. Starting in verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just ask today uh, that you illuminate the text for us. Father, we understand that we come to uh, this text as broken beings, Father, that are redeemed by you and being restored to your image. But Father, we need your Holy Spirit to illuminate the text in our lives, Father, to guide us to a proper understanding of what you would have for us. Father, be with us this morning as we try to consume your text uh, and your word, Father, that we look to see what you would have for us to know. Um, what's cool about Paul often is you can do this thing in reading of reading backwards what he says. Uh, Paul has so many commands and has so many concise thoughts that oftentimes you can work backwards through his thought. So in our case today, we're going to try this with John. You can do this often with Paul, less so with John. But something I want to show you guys is how to work backwards through a text. All you're doing when you work backwards through a text is trying to connect the end point, uh, if his last clause, uh, to the beginning, what he sets it up with. Uh, a lot of times, when, like last week, we talked about how he starts with the thesis, he gives you what he's going to do, he gives you his points on why it works, and then he gives us a conclusion as to what we're supposed to do with that. You can do that in 
just a sentence, too. I want to do this because of this, this, and this, so therefore this. And what's cool with those type of structures in the Bible is we can work backwards through that to maybe get a different perspective, or maybe just for us at least, to start with a different emphasis on what he has written. So for us, if we want to work backwards through this, we want to start in verse 17. Now you start with the last clause and you work backwards. The last clause is whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's an interesting thing to begin with, right? That's a much different premise than do not love the world or things in the world. Now, it's not necessarily that he, I'm not saying that he did it wrong. This is just a different way for us to gain some perspective, some insight into what he's writing and where he is trying to take us. Where he's trying to take us ultimately is the final clause. So whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's ultimately his point for us. So if we work backwards through that, and we see, okay, if I want to abide with God forever, I have to do his will. It sounds like a contrary, some kind of contrast has been set up. What is the opposite side? Well, the world, when it's passing away, but we immediately have a contrast, passing away and forever. So in just looking at his last sentence, we have a clause that talks about eternity. It talks about longevity. It talks about being forever. And, and right before that, it talks about passing away, being short, ending. And when we work backwards through here, we see a contrast forever. We see passing away. Okay, well, if I want to be the forever part, then I've got to do what? To abide with God. How do I abide with God? I do his will. Because the world is passing away, and the Father, in verse 16 at the end, is not, uh, is not from the world. I'm sorry, the stuff is not from the Father in the world. And the stuff is described in those parentheses. And at the beginning of 16, all that is in the world is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So if you couldn't see it the first time through, John is setting us up two columns, two contrasts, just like last week, light and darkness. This week, we have the world and we have uh, the Father. It's an important contrast for us um, as we see what one results in and what the other results in. But working backwards, at least for me, allows me to see the contrast much better. allows me to see what's kind of going into each column, what's going into each side of the scale. And so on one hand, I have God who abides forever, and we can abide with him by doing his will. And on the other hand, I have the world passing away. I see that the things of the world are not from the Father, so I can't try to bring them over to here. And I move backwards into 15. It says, the love of the Father is not in who? The one who loves the world. And so what? We should not, at the beginning, love the world or the things in the world. So working backwards through the text is not a different way necessarily to interpret. It's just a different way to bring some clarity to what his end purpose is. Because if we start in verse 15 and see, do not love the world or things in the world, the way I know church is pastors will cling to that, and that becomes the main point. Don't love the world. That's not the main point. The main point is where he ends in 17. Abide in the Father by doing his will. That's the point. Everything else is a contrast to show us the goodness of his final point. So, that's a study tool that you can use. Last week we talked about uh, cross-references and just some things I want to try to give you guys in reading. So, what do we do with today? We see already that there's two contrasts. Where are we going with this? Well, his, his point ultimately is his two, his two sides. Do not love the world, love God. Do the will of God. Don't love the things of the world. And so if last week we talked primarily about two doctrines that set us up for 
the understanding of the second point of John's writing, which is to uh, illustrate the life of a believer. What does it mean to know God? How do I know that I know God? If that's his second purpose, his first purpose is to give us doctrine, particularly in the incarnation of Christ. So if those are his twofold points. I'm trying to catch some of you guys who weren't here the past couple weeks up. John is, is concerned about those two things. And we saw in the first week, uh, the first four verses, giving us kind of those two things, that doctrine is a really important thing, particularly the incarnation of Christ in his context. And then the second one is to give assurance of salvation. How do I know that I know God? Or to take away false assurance by showing us that we do not, in fact, know God. So those are his two purposes. And as we moved in to last week, we saw a huge, huge exposition of his main points. And we started with two doctrines, that God is holy and then that we are depraved. We are sinners that are desiring darkness. We don't want any bit of light, let alone this gray area that we tried to, tried to, tried to make up and try to cling to as if we were in the light somehow. And that led us into understanding that we have to abide in the Father. And so if last week was primarily about doctrine leading into how do we live, because we saw like eight different assurance tests last week. This week is totally about how do I live a life as a believer. Now last week we did uh, those last couple of verses, probably indented into your Bible. and talk about, I write to you children, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men. He repeats, I write to you children, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men. You see that right above verse 15. That has to do a lot with where we're going today. But it was necessary to put it with last week's because it's kind of the summation of his original point. For us today, we're going to keep that in the back of our minds of context. If you weren't here last week, just go ahead and read that and understand that that is talking about the mature Christian. What should Christian maturity look like in a body? The doctrine should lead to maturity. That's last week in a nutshell. This week, we're taking that maturity idea and letting that flow more into what does it look like for a believer to love God. So if you would claim Christ today and these things are true of you and loving the world, there is no assurance to be found. If you today would call yourself a believer and you instead do the will of the Father and abide in Him, then there is assurance to be found for you. As we're going to see, the gospel is flying through this entire thing, uh, but we'll come to that later. So today is all about what does the life of a believer look like? How do I know God? And so we read this text, and it talks about loving the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And we very quickly would say, no, I don't, I don't want that. I don't have these lusts, these desires. I mean, I know that those are bad, and why do you think that we might have those? And the danger for us is to try to step back. Just as we were going through Luke, and we say, no, I'm not a Pharisee. I'm on, I'm on Jesus' side. I'm cheering for Jesus the whole time. When we have to really put ourselves in the text and say, no. I'd probably be on the side with the Pharisees. And we deal honestly with ourselves and deal honestly with the text. Then when we get to this, and it talks about all that's in the world, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life, we have to understand that that's talking about us. We can't just throw ourselves on the side of Jesus and say, oh, I abide with God, I love God. We have to deal honestly with ourselves. We have to deal honestly with the text. That's why last week when we talked about total depravity, it's so important. That's so why I spent so much time last week talking about the contrast that we have between light and darkness. It is an immense chasm between the two. 
As much as we want to put ourselves in the middle, we have to deal honestly with ourselves. And doctrine allows us to do that. So I think the first thing that we're going to see today is the incompatibility of love for the world and love for the Father. The incompatibility of love for the world and love for the Father. The first main subpoint there is do not love the world. Pretty easy. Do not love the world. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We have to understand if we're going to do anything today, that love for the Father and love for the world are absolutely mutually exclusive. We talked last week in our introduction, and we talked even back in the finance class that we did just a few short weeks ago, that if we're going to deal honestly with the text, we have to understand that God is a God of extremes, right? If you have a God of such power as our God, he is an extreme God. Again, not in the 90s sense, but he is huge. And then we have Jesus who shows up and says that we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. See that if we're going to sin, we should cut off our hand and throw it in the fire and remove our eye to keep from lusting. Well, God is an extreme God, and when it comes to sin, we see the huge, huge difference between a holy God and sinful man. If we're going to understand what it means to love the Father, we have to deal in the extremes. Calvin says this, talking about uh, particularly verse 15. He says, The previous and indeed, main instruction that the apostle gives is to love God. I mean, that's, that's the crux of the message, is to love God. But, as when we are occupied with vain love of the world, we turn away all our thoughts and affections another way. This vanity must first be torn away from us, in order that the love of God may reign within us. The idea that when we're occupied with love for the world, it pulls away our thoughts, it pulls away our affections from God. And if we're going to deal with the command, the very simple command of love God, we have to be torn away from those distractions. He goes on to say, Until our minds are cleansed, the former doctrine of loving God may be iterated a hundred times. We can stand up here every sermon and say, Love God, love people. Fall in love with the gospel. I can say that a hundred thousand times, but it would have no effect. It would be like pouring water on a ball. You cannot gather a drop because there is no empty place to retain the water. When we're dealing with love for God and love for the world, so often, and even going through youth ministry, I tried to just set up the why one's better. I always just tried to say, well, this is why God is better. Like expecting, uh, expecting youth and then even adults to say, well, I want what's better. And we don't always do that. How often do we always do what we think is best? When you go to the grocery store, do you always buy the best quality thing? No. It's certainly better than some of the alternatives. Why do we not always get what's best? We, we can say God is better than the world till, till the cows come home, and nothing's going to change because we're distracted we're distracted by a love for the world that pulls our affections, that pulls our thoughts away, so that when the word is poured forth on Sundays, when it's consumed at home, 
When we talk about it around a table, there's no place for it to go. It is absolutely incompatible to love the world and love the Father. They are absolutely mutually exclusive. We try to maintain this idea of, well, I can kind of love the world. I mean, God so loved the world, right? There's a difference between loving the people of the world, and there's a difference from that to the things of the world. I think that's why John specifically adds, do not love the world or the things in the world. We're dealing with a, a very materialistic sense of world, what the world has to offer. It's not necessarily who is here that he's trying to push towards. He's pushing more to the things in the world. What does the world have to offer, if you will? James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There is no middle ground. You can't try to play the middle. I know so often that I try to stay in the middle with a hand on each side. I think about you know, my life as a, as a pastor and what do I look like to the world versus what do I look like to my family. I know a lot of my brothers try to bring their pastor life of what they look like in public home. And that's a facade and that's ultimately why they will fail or why I can fail. My home life has to be as good or better than my public life. See, when I try to cling to the public life and make sure I look good to all of you, to uh, Facebook, uh, to Walmart, to Kroger, with people that I encounter, I have to be, <laughs> I'm trying to get them to love me for who I'm pretending to be. And when I'm at home, my family and my wife gets to see me as I am. It's much harder to keep a consistent mask going on there. And the danger is that I try to do my best there, certainly I will, but then at the same time try to keep a handle on the world where I try to keep my pride, where I try to get accolades, where I try to be accepted, where I try to be loved. And I try to inc make these things fit together and they don't. My family can tell when I'm faking it. They can tell what's not genuine. They can see my struggles and see how I generally try to work through them, but there's a balance there that we can't maintain. It's either one or the other. And I think what I want for us today is not to just say, okay, they can't be. It's to say, which side am I on? I get that they don't fit together. I get that I can't love God and I can't love the world at the same time. Okay, that truth is, has hit you now. Now we need to keep going a step further. Which one am I holding on to? And James calls us adulterous people. We're trying to... <laughs> Be lovers of God, yet still fiddle around with the world. And Calvin goes on to say, he says, Moreover, the love of the world is thus severely condemned because we must necessarily forget God and ourselves when we regard nothing so much as the earth. And when a corrupt lust of this kind rules in man, a love of the world, a love of the things of the world, when that reigns in a man and so holds him entangled that he thinks not of the heavenly life, he is possessed by beastly stupidity. We talked about in our finance class, uh, eternal perspective, right? We talk about finances and our returns on our um, investments and trying to even think with a house, right? What is the return, ultimately, an investment on a house of a 30-year mortgage? What do I get out of that? 
I'm thinking ahead, right? When I'm planning for retirement, I'm thinking ahead, 30, 40, 50 years, I'm thinking ahead. Any good broker or financial advisor is going to tell you that much, right? And when we're dealing with a radical and extreme God, we have to step back from the timeline and not just think 30 years ahead, not even think three years ahead to what it would look like to have a kid in school. But 30, then what about 300? What about 30 million? Where do you want your money 30 million years from now? What are your investments in time, resources, relationships? How does that pay off in 3 million years? What's the interest rate on that? That's an eternal perspective. If we're trying to balance a love for God and a love for money, for the world, for pride, what do our investments look like? What is the eternal perspective that we should have? Calvin is saying that when we are so focused on the love of this world, we find ourselves absolutely entangled, distracted, our affections are pulled away, and we live and are possessed by a beastly stupidity. It's a dangerous call for us to understand that there is no compatibility. The second thing, the world is passing away. The world is passing away. Romans 13, verse 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Proverbs chapter 27 talks about how never satisfied are the eyes of man. We have Paul warning us not to make provision for the flesh. We have the writer of Proverbs warning us that the eyes will never stop seeing things it desires. Why is that important? Well, we're going to talk about worldliness, or if you think back to our finance class, materialism. We're going to talk about what that looks like. We need to understand that it's not just limited to an external behavior. Often when I think of worldliness, it's, it's very exterior. We think of vanity. We think of uh, people who just accumulate stuff, hoarders. They, they always want stuff. That's a very external appearance, right? You have to understand that it's not just limited to that. It certainly is that, but it's not limited to that. So before we go any further, let's look back at our text. Verse 16, it says, For all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. If you have dashes there, um, understand that middle section where he states those three things to be parenthetical in nature. So he's saying, for all that is in the world, i.e., for example, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, they're not from God, but they're from the world. And so if we're looking at worldliness, the things of the world are not from the Father at all. So let's deal with materialism. Uh, there's a guy named Epicurus. Uh, we're our Epicurean. If you've heard that term, that's where it comes from. He makes a threefold division between lusts. He says that the things that we desire, the things that we lust for, um, can be separated into three things. Some natural and necessary. Some natural and not necessary. And some neither natural nor necessary. But what's interesting with John is he, he knows very well the insubordination of the human heart. And he unhesitantly condemns the lust of the flesh because it always flows out and moderately. There is no division. It's all evil. Anything that is not of God is evil. 
And here's our extremes again. Our God is a God of extremes. We understand that it is one or the other. It is light or it is dark. It is love for God or it is love for the world. It is good or it is evil. What would it look like for our community to deal in more extremes? What would it look like for our body to understand that we can't keep trying to walk this middle ground together? And when we see someone trying to walk in middle ground, we don't you know, make them feel bad, but we say, that's, that's gray. It can't be gray. Now, I mean all this for everyone except for Matt. Um, Matt is already good with the black and whites, right? Um, for us, what if we adopted some of that? If we understood the prophet's gift, his spiritual gift of being able to see things uh, and discern between things in very extreme lights. Now, certainly when dealing with relationships, there are uh, opportunities for gray area. When we talk about love covering a multitude of sins, like we talked about last week, um, th- it has fine lines to walk. But what if we approached our jobs? What if we approached our trips to Kroger? What if we ap- approached our trips to Walmart, to Amazon, um, <laughs> with an understanding of these things are really one or the other? What would that do for us? What would that do for our bank accounts, for our relationships? What would that do if we adopted some of this extremism, if you will, um, of understanding the good versus the evil? We have to understand that it's not just those exterior things, the shopping, but it is also internal. Why? Because it begins in the heart. Desire gives birth to sin, and out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. James talks about how desire or temptation begins in the heart of man. We are desperately evil. We are absolutely wicked. We are enemies of God, Colossians tells us. Aliens to the true promise. And so if we understand that these desires that in verse 16 we want to so eschew begin in our hearts, it allows us to deal honestly with the text. It's not Satan going rah, throwing stuff in our path. Certainly he wants us to stumble. Certainly he wants to devour us. But oftentimes he doesn't have to do a whole lot of work because we do a lot of it. We understand that our evil is in our hearts. That's why we need the Savior. That's where begins temptation, and out of the heart begins desire. And Matthew, or Jesus in Matthew, rather, warns us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, often in interacting with fellow believers, I'm able to tell pretty much where they're at in their walk with Christ simply by what they say. What are the things that are important to them? What is it about their speech that is reflecting what's in the heart? Because as much as we do try to hide what's in there, it will come out. And we can understand that worldliness begins in the heart. And the reason it has the exterior implications is because it began inside. Our hearts are wicked. So, verse 16 gives us three things in the parentheses. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of of life. These things, again, are not from the Father, but from the world. Let's talk about these. The first one, the desires or cravings of the flesh or of the sinful man. The NIV says the lust of the flesh. This essentially for us is a preoccupation with gratifying physical desires. When we're talking about the desires of the flesh or the cravings of sinful man or the lust of the flesh, it's a preoccupation with gratifying 
physical desires. Whereas we want to give ourselves over to things that will please us, we want to have for ourselves experiences, we want to do things, we want to see the world, sow your wild oats, all these things. That's, that's our world screaming for the lust of the flesh. I don't just mean sex. That's often when we hear flesh and lust that it fits into that pigeonhole, but it's so much more. And whereas the world would call for us to give ourselves over to these things, God is calling us to self-control. Through the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. The things of God, the things of walking in the light, the things of abiding in God, of being part of the vine that John 15 tells us, will produce fruit. And these fruits will be a self-control in our lives. The second thing is the desire of the eyes. Or the NIV would say the lust of the eyes. This is simply craving and accumulating things. Bowing to the God of materialism. In our finance class, we talked extensively about materialism and some of the dangers of that. Um, If you're interested in uh, digging into not materialism, I don't want you to become more materialistic, but seeing the dangers of it, uh, you can check out the book that we use for that. It's Managing God's Money by Randy Alcorn. It's super cheap on Kindle. Um, There's an entire chapter talking about materialism and the dangers in the world for us and that. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time since a lot of you were there for that. But understand that materialism is not just, I like nice things. Uh, We look at people who have much more money than us and we say they're materialistic because they have such nice things. And I think that is an easy way for us to justify our materialism when we have less nice things. Um, People that make $15,000 a year can be just as materialistic as people who make $150,000 a year. Understand that we have to deal in absolutes. What is my heart leading me to? You see, the sin is not just in what they have, it's in what the heart is making them do. The desires that are born in the heart is what is the lust of the eyes. And so, bowing to the God of materialism means craving, accumulating things, going on Amazon and impulse buying, going to Walmart for one thing and coming out with 15. Um, That's materialism. I need this, I need this, I need this. I need is a crave. That is craving. Putting stuff on your wish list and waiting a month and a half to buy it may still be materialism, but that's all going to be a question of the heart, but there's certainly a much better way to process that, right? We talk a lot about that there. Um, so let's, let's just summarize, summarize that one. Desires of the eyes, getting what you want, accumulating, craving, and satisfying these needs is what the world would scream for. And, of course, on the other side, God would say, be generous. Instead of accumulating for your stuff so much based out of what you have, give away what you do have, be generous to others. Had Matt read through uh, Romans chapter 12 for us, talking about what does a mature believer look like. We didn't talk about that one last week. We talked about Titus 2. But what does it look like for a mature believer? It's all the one another's. Loving one another, spurring each other onto righteousness, taking care of people so that they're without need. That's what it looks like for a believer to live a Christian life. It's not just the tithe. It's not just the tithe and the offering. 
It's the tithe, the offering, being generous, making sure that no one has needs, taking care of people. God wants us to be generous. The last one, the pride of life, or boasting of what he has and does. Pride of life is simply this. It's an obsession with one's status or importance. Another way to look at it would be ambition, boasting, contempt of others, blind love of self, headstrong self-confidence. The pride of life, boasting of what he has and does. This is the person who can't let go of yesterday. This is the guy who can't let go of his high school championship in football. This is the guy who looks back to God doing something in his life and clinging to that for 10 years. There's nothing wrong with looking back to a movement of God in your life. There should be another one. (laughs) It's awesome that God brought you up out of this, this circumstance in your life and delivered you. There's a long process of sanctification. God is always active. There should be new seasons in life with Christ all the time. And see, often in youth ministry, we go to camp and you have the camp experience and you come back and they're like, well, what happened? They were on fire and now they're like underwater. Part of that is trying to integrate a love for God and a constant immersion in the world back into a church where adults don't necessarily do that. That's the youth pastor side of me blaming adults. Um, On the flip side, we have to understand that it is hard to maintain that because pride of life takes over when we begin to take credit for the things that God is doing. Or we say, yes, God did that, and I keep living, and now I'm married, now I have kids, and I keep saying, yeah, God did that thing way back then. And what you're telling me is that God hasn't done anything in your life since you were 14. hasn't done anything in your life since you were 21. God is always, always doing things in our life. So our status should not matter. What we have and what we do should not matter because God is the one who delivers. God is the one who gives. And and because of that, we see that God requires of us humility and service. It's not about what you can get for yourself. It's not about who you are. It's not about ambition for what you might have one day or boasting or any of that. It's humility and service. That only comes about by understanding that God does everything. He's the one that prepared good deeds for us in advance. He's the one that calls us to regeneration. He's the one that gives us the power in the Holy Spirit to live a life of power and a life of love for His Son. And because of that, we can be humble and serve people. So, our contrast, yet again. Desires of the flesh versus self-control. Desires of the eyes versus generosity. And the pride of life versus humility and service. And understand that these three things are obviously an umbrella, a large umbrella of three different aspects of life. John is trying to summarize, parenthetically, all that is in the world, and he lists these three things, huge umbrellas of opportunities for sin in our life. But these are the same things that Satan used with Eve in Genesis chapter 3. So that it was good to eat. You'll be like God pride, desire of the eyes. It's even the same things that Satan tempts Jesus with in the desert in Matthew chapter 4. These three umbrellas are big things to look out for. And we have to understand that everything that comes underneath of those umbrellas 
is not of the Father, but of the world. Um, we, uh, th- this is God's timing. We watched The Great Gatsby uh, this past uh, Friday. Uh, well, I watched it because everybody else fell asleep. Um, <laughs> and then I watched Iron Man 3. That was exciting. Um, I watched The Great Gatsby. I've not read the book. Um, I make no apologies for that. Uh, <laughs> I may now, though. Watched that and uh, n- didn't know anything about it. Um, so it was an entirely new experience for me. Um, haven't even read like the synopsis on Wikipedia or anything. I walked into that and watched that movie. It was really weird at first. I'm trying to track everything that's going on. Ultimately, and spoiler alert, so if you go like this now, that's fine. Um, it is a good movie. You should watch it. And I, don't, I can't vouch for the book, but everybody loves it. And they made a movie out of it. Um, spoiler alert, last time. Guy, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, right, walks through his entire life trying to be something that he's not. He's a poor man who accumulates for himself status, wealth, becomes a gentleman, all for the purpose of one woman. And when that woman comes into his life, finally, after a long time, she's already married to somebody, and she falls in love with him. And he wants her to tell him, because they're getting ready to leave together, to go have life together. He, he absolutely mandates that she has to say these words to her husband. I never loved you. I always loved Gatsby. And she can't do it, because she did love him. And you find yourself in this movie wanting to cheer for this guy, even though really we shouldn't at all. You wanted to cheer for him, and all of a sudden you see his life just fall apart again. Because he realizes that everything that he was is built on a lie. And we try to accumulate for ourselves the desires of the flesh. We try to accumulate for ourselves the desires of the eyes, to have a pride of life and boast in who we are just to find one day at a pull of a trigger that it all disappears. And then what? You see, that's the aspect of the movie that uh, they don't answer for us. See, we're left at the end seeing that he gets shot through the heart. Don't start singing, Greg. Um, (laughs) Or Brian. It'll probably be him. (laughs) He gets shot through the heart. He is blamed for everything bad that happens. No one comes to his funeral. He doesn't know where the love of his life is. And everything is gone forever. Why does eternal perspective matter? Because we can spend our entire life doing these things. And just like Calvin says, we will live in beastly stupidity. Calvin says this. He says, the sum of the whole is this. That as soon as the world presents itself, then our lusts or desires, when our hearts are corrupt, so this is with a corrupt heart, and the world presents itself, then our lusts and desires are captivated by it, like unbridled wild beasts, so that various lusts, all which are in opposition to God, bear rule in us. When we try to hold a hand on the world, we like to think that we're in control, but those things are controlling us. That's the key Thing to understand when it comes to materialism. The reason that we can't love God and the world is because that we were controlled by our love. If you don't believe that, look at teenagers. Sorry, you guys. Look at college students who fall in love and give up their entire education, who give up everything to chase a love. 
Look at adults who fall in love with their career, who fall in love with their cars, their toys, their houses, or another man or woman. And they're willing to throw it all away. See, across the gamut from teenager to adult, we are controlled by our desires. The reason that the psalmist always talks about giving us a renewed sense of our salvation, changing the desires of our heart, is because we understand that what we most desire is what we will do. Our actions show what we really believe. The reason Matt said at the beginning this morning that sin is a result of disbelief is because we are not desiring the true things of God. We don't believe that God can satisfy more than and perfectly than the world. And since we don't really believe that, we cling to the things of the world. I hope you can see now the understand and understand the need to be captivated by Jesus Christ. It should make it easier to understand Piper's language of seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. To have affections for Jesus is to be consumed by that. It's not just to like Jesus. See, in, 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 our, in our Western culture, in our Valentine's Day, in our puppy love type approaches, we have affections for God. He's, he's cool. I, I enjoy God. I enjoy Jesus. I'm thankful for what he did. But it's, it's such a surface puppy love with Jesus. And we wonder why people fall away from the faith. It's because of the soils. We wonder why people get choked out, why, why the word of life gets choked out, and they don't persevere. It's because they have a puppy love affair with Jesus. And that danger is true for us. John wants us to know that we know God. We can know that we know God by loving him deeply. What happens when you fall in love with your spouse? What happens when you fall in love with whatever in this world you desire to please that thing? It controls and consumes your thoughts and your life. What would happen if you had those same affections for Jesus? What would your job look like? What would your home look like? What would the church look like if we had those kind of affections? That is certainly something I'm still working on, but I'll tell you what helps me in this. The more I understand doctrine, the more I understand theology, the study of God, the more I understand God, the more I love Him. It's the same as my wife. The more I learn about my wife, the more I love her. The more I learn about my daughter, her preferences, the fact that she eats kale that looks like paint, um, the fact that she likes those things and she eats uh, the stuff that I cook for her, makes me love her more. Those affections grow as I know them more. Why do we think that we can somehow magically love God more without knowing who he is? We have to be captivated by Jesus Christ. But it's incredibly hard to do that when we are distracted and our affections and thoughts are pulled away because of the world. And so pray for me in my life that I begin to let go of those things so that I can see and savor Jesus Christ. I pray those things for you. I pray those for you so that you actually will come on Tuesday and Wednesdays, that you come here on Sunday mornings, that you have opportunities to see and savor and learn who God is, that you can love him 
more. See, the danger for us as, as believers in a body is it's possible to appear that we don't value worldliness. And we can try to limit those exterior um, consequences of, of the heart as much as we want. But the problem is, is that it, we still cling to those in our hearts. And while we can limit the appearance of it, it's still have just such a, a grasp in our heart of these things. So we have to ask ourselves two questions. First, on the outside, let's just start there where it's a little easier to see. Do my actions reflect God's values or the world's values? Do my actions reflect God's values or the world's values? And it should be pretty easy for us to see because all that is in the world, verse 16, is not from the Father. Does your Facebook look different than your friends? Does your Instagram, Twitter, any social media look different than your friends? Does your free time look different than your friends? Do your actions reflect God's values or the world's values? And then on the inside, this is a little bit harder to root out, but we have to be honest with ourselves. What values are most important to me? If we identify first which ones that we're doing, that will reveal where the heart is at, because out of the heart comes that desire. And so if we can be honest with ourselves on the outside, it will point to a heart condition that either needs to be blossoming or needs to die. Let's wrap this up. And to point to the transience of the world as contrasted with the eternity of him who does God's will. The transience of the world is, is contrasted with the eternity of him who does God's will. Verse 17 leads us to our next subpoint. Those who do the will of the Father abide in him. Those who do the will of the Father abide in him. All of your subpoints are essentially our text. <laughs> Let's read verse 17 together. <clears throat> it has a conjunction, and, which means it's leading right off of the previous clause in Greek. In English, we put a period and capitalize the and, which is weird. The Father is not the one who gives all these things in the world. Things from the world are not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Which implies what? That the things of God will not pass away, but even more explicitly, whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. So those who do the will of the Father abide in Him. If you've read 1 Corinthians, uh, you see lots of, of conversations about love and desires. And then Paul goes to Thessalonica and writes 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians has a lot of eschatology in it. Uh, a lot of stuff about the end times, about the second coming of Christ. And in writing all of that, he uses some pretty extreme language of saying how close it is, how close it's drawing near. Um, then they all quit their jobs. Uh, they're ready for the second coming. They've prepared, and they're waiting, and they're not doing anything but waiting for the second coming. So Paul has to write a second letter and say, 
whoa, whoa, whoa. If you don't work, you don't eat. Uh, there are certainly things that we need to do now in the meantime before God comes. But understand that we have to be ready. And just like we talked in the finance class, it's like the guy who manages the mansion of a guy who's been gone for 30 years. But he takes care of it. It's spotless. You walk up to the mansion and you talk to the man taking care of it and say, well, he's been gone for 30 years. When do you expect him to come back? And he replies, today, of course. We live with that kind of readiness in our eternal perspective. Understanding that the, the world is going away. All that is in the world is not from the Father, but it's from the world, and the world is passing away. What kind of eternal perspective do we live with? We need to understand that the world will end. When we're talking about living 30 years in advance, that's not far enough. Looking ahead 30 million years. We need to understand that it will end. In fact, given where he goes in the very next verse, in verse 18... It's closer than we think. Get rid of those separations in your Bible and put them right next to each other. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour. In fact, I'm sorry, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. The end is coming. This, this world and its stuff is going to go away. The things that we hold most precious in the world, oftentimes, and they're deemed especially desirable, the things that we want or the things that we have that we love, are nothing but a shadowy phantom of what is to come. Again, Gatsby has everything, has thousands of people in his house for parties every weekend, never desires anything except for this love of his life. And in the pull of a trigger, none of that matters anymore. Even the most grandiose things, I mean, it was grandiose, cease to matter. It is a shadowy phantom of what is to come. And again, I... We pigeonhole this into being, it's not worth it. Uh, it's more than it's not worth it. It goes back up to where we were earlier about being captivated. It's not just that we have these things, it's that we're consumed by them. And then what we're consumed with doesn't matter at all. At the last beat of a heart, at the pull of a trigger, at the screech of a car. It's the fact that we are consumed and captivated by that. And if we are consumed and captivated by that, we're not consumed and captivated with Jesus. Knowing that this evil world and our desires for its pleasures will end should not make us love it all the more so that we can have it while it's here, but it should give us courage to control our greedy, our self-indulgent behavior and to continue doing God's will. An eternal perspective of understanding that the world is not going to be here and the desires of it are going to pass away should lead us to see and savor Jesus Christ. It should make it easier to listen to Paul in Romans when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It should be easier in Romans 12, just the chapter before, to not be conformed to the world to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The renewal of the mind is the key to what he was talking about, Calvin was, in the water. 
If we don't rip those affections and desires away, there's no place left for God. And Calvin wraps up. He says, what is spoken of here is not the perfect keeping of the law. When we talk about doing God's will at the end of verse 17, whoever does the will of God, we're not talking about the perfect keeping of the law, but the obedience of faith, which however imperfect it may be, is still approved by God. And in fact, at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, and Matt didn't read, in verse 3, it talks about how we should not look um, on ourselves higher than other people because of faith. The faith that we have is given by God. That's why we ask, and the, the psalmist asks, give us faith. The disciples show us, give us faith, because faith is from God, and He apportions it to us. And He doesn't look uh, <laughs> with disapproval on us because we don't keep the law. He looks upon approval with us because we are obedience and, uh, obedient in faith. And while it may be imperfect, it is of God and approved by God. Again, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Calvin goes on, he says, the will of God is first made known to us in the law. We all know that. We look at the Torah, the first five books, and we know that that was the law. And the will of God is certainly clear in that. It's very easy to see what God is trying to do in the Torah. But, as no one satisfies the law, no happiness can be hoped from it. We can't keep the law. We can't. There is no happiness to be gained from that. But, Christ comes to meet the despairing with new aid, who not only regenerates us by His Spirit, brings us to life, and brings us to justification, that we may obey God, but makes also that our endeavor, our work, as it, as it is, should obtain the praise of perfect righteousness. Christ comes on the scene with us trying to obey the law and failing, trying to walk with God, trying to do the will of God, as it says in verse 17, but failing. And the key to the gospel is this. Christ brings us to life and allows us to even attempt to keep the law. And even so, in our work of trying to do that, we gain righteousness not by our work, but by being obedient in the work, by entrusting in the power of the Holy Spirit, but ultimately resting in the righteousness put on us by Christ. The righteousness that He earned on the cross, the fact that He was the propitiation that we talked about last week, the wrath absorber on the cross. He earned righteousness for us. And while we live in faithful obedience, that righteousness is put on top of us. So we should obtain the praise of perfect righteousness. And God looks upon us. So the easy question to wrap this up, given that ultimately the final clause is his point, is are you doing the will of the Father? It's nothing mysterious. It's nothing revolutionary. I'm not bringing anything to you today that you've not heard. Are you doing the will of the Father? Are you in love with Jesus Christ? Are your affections and your thoughts 
distracted from God? Are you in love with the world? Is there anything that you could lose in your life that would absolutely destroy you? Those are the things that we need to be careful about. You say, well, of course, I would, I would be in such despair if I lost my spouse, if I lost my child. There is despair, maybe for a time, there's ultimately hope in Christ. Those things can make us sad and even be hard to work through. But we should be resting in Christ. That's why there's no middle ground. What does your heart desire? Does it desire the things of this world? Or does it desire the Father? Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. And children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Are you doing the will of the Father? Let's pray together, and then uh, we'll sing one more song, and then we'll be dismissed today. And Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Father, the clarity that three sentences can bring to our life. Father, as we digest what we've heard today and seen in your word, Father, that we will turn away from the world, bring our affections and our thoughts, uh, not just away, but Father, just rip out and make room for you. That our affections and love for you can grow as we learn more about you. Father, as we enjoy the things that you give us. Father, this world is full of evil, but Father, you give us blessings in this world to enjoy, because you enjoy giving good gifts to your children. And Father, we don't have to live as misers, we don't have to live um, hating everything that is here, and Father, live miserable, but we can find our joy in the good things that you give us. We can find our joy in relationship with Jesus Christ. We can find our joy in the blessings you pour out. And Father, we can be more joyous than anybody on this earth, knowing that with an eternal perspective, we will always have you, we will always abide in you, and that is forever. And Father, the blessings that you give us now will be the same blessings 30 million years from now. Father, not only are they better, but they last. And they were of you, they were of the light. We love you and we thank you for all that you're doing. We thank you for all that you've given. Father, we thank you for all the people that are here today. Father, as we share in the word together, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.